It's 203 of the common era. And a Roman aristocratic woman who's got pretty much all she needs in society to live a typical, standard, comfortable life is sitting in a Roman prison cell. She's a new mother. She's still breastfeeding her child. And she, her father comes and visits her and gives her every opportunity to get out of the Roman prison, but she does not take it. Three times, in fact, he comes. Why is she in prison? Her name's Perpetua, and she's in prison because she got baptized. She became a Christian. At this time, in this region of the Roman Empire, it was illegal not to be a Christian, but it was illegal to convert to Christianity. And Perpetua, after hearing the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus proclaimed, decided to give her life to Jesus, to make a decision to follow Jesus, to say, Jesus is Lord. In the empire at this time, to say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not Lord. That that man who sits on the throne in Rome is not God, but rather this Jewish wandering nomad from, at this point, 150 years ago, who died executed on a Roman cross and resurrected from the grave, is God. And Perpetua, knowing full well that conversion to Christianity is illegal, along with a class of other young Christians, enter into the waters of baptism, and they are baptized. And they know, as they are baptized, that to, be, um, to emerge out of those waters of baptism and identifying, a public symbol of identifying with the community of believers, to say, I am a Christian, is to sign her death warrant. Right after coming out of the waters of baptism, Perpetua is arrested, along with a series of other young Christians, both slaves and free Roman citizens, and they're taken into, taken into prison. There's a moment where Perpetua nurses her son for the last time and then passes her son to her father to raise. Perpetua's father begs her over and over again, for your son, recant your faith. For our family, for me, recant your faith. For our honor, recant your faith. She refuses. She's eventually hauled with the other Christians before the Roman magistrate, who asks her one question. Are you a Christian? To which she replies, I am a Christian. And the punishment for her conversion, along with the rest of the Christians, is death. And so the, the city gathers in the arena, and the Christians are led in, and they're mauled by wild beasts. And eventually the gladiators enter into the arena to finish what the beasts started. And this is one of the last accounts of Perpetua's life. But Perpetua, being pierced between the ribs, cried out loudly. She herself placed the wavering hand of the youthful gladiator to her throat. Possibly such a woman could not have been slain unless she herself willed it, because she was feared by the impure spirit. 
In her last moments, Perpetua takes matters into her own hands. This account comes from Perpetua herself, her diary. It's the oldest surviving work by a Christian woman. And she writes from prison, recounting her experiences, her dreams, her visions, her prayers, the visits of her fathers, the names of those who are imprisoned and who were baptized with her. And a Christian onlooker takes her journal entries and finishes them off and tells the story of her being slain in the arena. I am a Christian, is what Perpetua said, under the weight of death. I am a Christian. Jesus is Lord. Where did Perpetua and those killed with her get this confidence from? Where have the Christian martyrs throughout all of human history received their confidence from? Why would she be baptized knowing that to say I am a Christian, to be baptized, something we take for granted every time we do it here, meant that she would be arrested upon leaving the waters of baptism? What fills a woman with this much confidence? Our world has had to reckon with the influence of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. Our world has had to reckon with the influence of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. That some man, born in a backwater town in the Middle East, raised in another backwater town in the Middle East, uh, some man who, who held no political or military office, some man who, who had a small band of obscure followers, a, a man who was hated by his own people and by the Roman occupiers of the time, a man who was put to death on a Roman cross, the, the, the chief pinnacle of tortures and of executions, that this man's legacy 2,000 years later has shaped our society, has shaped the globe, Every corner of the earth, the influence of Jesus rests. This is our starting point this morning. That Jesus Christ existed and that his influence continues to this day. The New Testament scholar uh, Marcus Borg says, Some judgments are so probable as to be certain. For example, Jesus really existed and he really was crucified, just as Julius Caesar really existed and was assassinated. We can, in fact, know as much about Jesus as we can about any figure in the ancient world. This is not a matter for historians that's up to debate. Jesus surely existed. Uh, we, we have accounts of Jesus' life presented to us in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we also have extra-biblical historical evidence for Jesus. The Roman historian Tacitus writes about this strange movement of Christians. The Jewish, Jewish historian, all writing at the same time that the Gospels were produced, uh, uh, Josephus, he writes as well about Jesus and his strange band of followers. Uh, about 150 years ago, there were still some historians who were saying, 
maybe, maybe this is all conjecture. Maybe they made it up. But in today's day and age, in fact, I saw one historian that said to deny the existence of Jesus is on the same level as denying the Holocaust or believing the earth is flat. Jesus existed, and this is our starting point this morning. It's an undeniable fact of history, and his influence is undeniable. His influence in my life, as I've said over the course of the last couple of sermons, how how I've spoke of the profound influence that Jesus has had in my life, but also perhaps in yours. I mean, you're sitting in a church 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus. You're sitting here because of his impact, because of his legacy. The way our society is shaped and formed is because of Jesus and the Christian movement that followed thereafter. And so, you know, there's a book. It's a a book that came out a couple years ago. It's called Dominion. Uh, It's by an author named Tom Holland. He's a secular historian. He's not a Christian, but he writes extensively about Christianity and about the historical impact of Christianity. And it's interesting what Holland notes in his book Dominion. It's a long read, but if you need a book for the doc this summer, you know where to find it. Holland writes that the Christian movement was solely responsible for the eradication of slavery in the Roman Empire. That the Christian movement had the intellectual and the moral framework which allowed slavery to be dismantled across the empire. He further writes that it's Christianity that transformed the sexual ethic of the Roman Empire. That single-handedly Christianity made exploitative sex taboo and transformed the Western world. He argues that the fundamental basis for human rights, which we all take for granted, comes from, and in fact wouldn't have a leg to stand on, apart from the influence of the Christian movement. It's a fascinating read. Holland, as he summarizes his book, says this, To be a Christian is to believe that God became man, and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. This is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe, that serves to explain, more surely than anything else, the sheer strangeness of Christianity and the civilization to which it gave birth. Today, the power of this strangeness remains as alive as it has ever been. It is manifest in the great surge of conversions that has swept Africa and Asia over the past century, in the convictions of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit, like a living fire, still blows upon the world, and in Europe and North America, in the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christian. Holland argues that the whole Western world as we know it has come out of the Christian movement. That the Western world as we know it is because of the influence of Jesus Christ. And so our question today is, is Jesus just a fact of history or is he who he said he was? 
maybe to put it even in the present tense, is Jesus just a fact of history, or is he who he says he is? If we believe, like we talked about in week two, that the Bible is living and active, that it is God's word for us now, then Jesus is surely, by the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminating the word to us as we read it. Is Jesus who he says he is, or is he just a fact of history? You yourself will have to reckon with this question. The Christian accounts of the life of Jesus are called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books that kick off the beginning of the New Testament. And depending on your Bible translation, when you go to the start of the book, it very well may say the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, or if you've got one of those new modern Bibles, it just says Mark. But the Gospels, this is how we've known it, the Gospel according to Mark. And so we read together from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. We have a full sermon on this passage. If you go onto our YouTube or our Spotify, you can go back to the Mark chapter 1 sermons. There's three or four sermons of, from Mark chapter 1. But we have one on this passage. That John the Baptist, the, the, the one who came before Jesus to announce Jesus, was put in prison. He eventually is beheaded. We get there later in Mark. And he's proclaiming the good news of God. But then Jesus shows up and says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. What is the gospel? This word good news that Jesus says is the same word that's later used by some of the apostles, gospel, the same word gospel that we use today. It just fundamentally means good news. The good news of Jesus. What is the gospel? What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of Israel. The good news is that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of Israel and that he has come. Now, to make sense, why are you referencing Israel? Shouldn't you be like referencing the church or the forgiveness of our sins? Go back to week two. We need to find ourselves in the story. What's the significance of Jesus Christ's coming? And so in order to do that, we're going to recap the story. And I'm going to suggest that we need to recap the story over and over and over and over until we learn to live in the story. Because whether you like it or not, you embody a story. A story that makes sense of your existence. A story which frames your reality, how you got here this morning. All your philosophical assumptions about life, your religious convictions, who you vote for, what you do with your money, it's all because you live in a story. You live in a way, as a meaning-making, storytelling creature, you must live in a story. Your soul craves it. Your mind needs it. And sometimes that story is just shutting off and existing. But you live in a story. So what's the biblical story? We go back to the beginning, to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. He created the heavens and the earth, and he said that it was good. 
He created humanity. And when God took a step back and he looked at everything, he said that it was very good. In the beginning, we see the people of God in the place that God created, in the presence of God, the way that God had intended it to be. The first 10 minutes of last week's podcast where Dr. Robert Dean shares, he speaks about God's created intention in answering one of the questions. It just blew my mind hearing him. You have to go back. You have to watch it. The first 10 minutes. I won't spoil it for you. But God creates. It's good. It's very good. And then we skip ahead to Genesis 3 and we see the fall of man. Where humanity makes a choice for autonomy, instead of following the way that God has prescribed things, we chose for ourselves what direction we wanted to go as Adam and Eve rebelled against God's instruction in the garden and in, the chi- in, in all of their pride went their own way. And as we move through the scriptures, the Old Testament tells us through the law, through the prophets, of God's continued rescue mission for humanity. That despite our sin, God does not give up on the human project, but that he seeks to reconcile humanity. After Adam and Eve, through Noah, God makes a covenant. And his covenant is to reestablish relationship with humanity, who have gone off to their own devices to do their own thing. Through Abraham, God begins restoring a collective of people who are going to follow him, who are going to live according to his ways. And to, through, what, through this group of people, he will bring about his purposes to be a light to the nations. In Moses, God's presence comes. In a covenant with Moses, God's presence comes and dwells among his people. Once again, the people of God in the presence of God And through Moses and Joshua, in the place that God intended, as he promises a land for them, and then brings them to establish in this land. Through David, we find another covenant that God makes with humanity. And in David, God chooses a human leader whose first first priority is to lead the people of God into the worship of God. In Jesus Christ, we find what the prophet Jeremiah calls the new covenant. Another promise that God makes with humanity. And in Jesus coming, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, incarnating, becoming fully God, or being fully God, yet becoming fully man. The the New Testament writers refer to Jesus as the true Adam. That Jesus did what Adam couldn't. That Jesus could live the sinless life that Adam was intended to live, but didn't. That Jesus could do everything that God intended. He was the true man. He was the chief example of humanity as God created it to be. And Jesus lived. He lived as as humanity was created to live. He suffered. He died. And he resurrected. And this is the Christian belief. That upon his resurrection, the kingdom of God has come. That Jesus, through his resurrection, inaugurated the kingdom of God. That things are different now. That life does not look the same because Jesus has risen from the grave. And in rising from the grave, he has defeated the powers of sin and death. That no longer hold a stronghold over you and me. And he has then commissioned the people of God, the people that he has chosen, you and me sitting here, to go out to be his heralds, 
his messengers to take this news of the new covenant, the promise that God has made through Jesus Christ with us to the corners of the world. And the corners of the world are now represented in this room here as the word has gone out, as the gospel has been proclaimed. And he makes a promise. His promise is that he will return, that he will judge the living and the dead, that he will bind the powers of sin and death once and for all, proclaiming ultimate victory, and that he will renew his creation in a way that we can here and now only begin to imagine the glory, the wonder, the awe of his renewal of all things. The scripture says it's the place where there will be no tears. This is the biblical story. And the gospel is that Jesus is that promised Messiah of Israel. As God chose a people, constituted these people, walked with these people, over and over he promised a new covenant is coming. There will be a day. And through the law and through the prophets, it all points to the person of Jesus. Some scholars say that there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life. Never mind the ones that he will fulfill in the time to come. We go together today to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we read from verses 1 through 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that, more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He then appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, this is Paul speaking, also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I. But the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. As the Apostle Paul writes, he says, the life of Jesus was foretold according to the scriptures, that he died according to the scriptures. These are the scriptures that Paul, as a, as a religious, devout, zealous Jew, would have known well. It's our Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul is saying all of this points to Jesus. That Jesus is revealed in every page of the Old Testament. That this is the culmination of it all. The gospel is about Jesus. That he has come as the one promised to us. And so as I thought about the gospel and Jesus, what, what, what's necessary in 40 minutes to communicate? First, 
The gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel of Jesus, I mean, the gospel according to Mark, this is, this is the gospel that Jesus has come, that Jesus is not just a fact of history, but that he is who he said he is. The gospel is good news. It's not just good advice. The gospel is a proclamation of something inherently good that has changed the fabric of our world, that is felt in every corner of the globe. Good advice doesn't get past you and your friends. This is a little, maybe your Facebook feed. You get some good advice on there. But good news goes a lot further. See, the gospel is not something we do. The gospel is not something we do, it's something that has been done. Oftentimes when we hear this word gospel, and in the West we're really formed by, by Billy Graham and, and the evangelistic crusades, right? Where Billy's going to preach a sermon, all well and good, let it be known, but this is what forms our imaginations when we hear the word gospel. He's going to preach a sermon, and then you're going to put your hand up, you're going to receive Christ, you're going to come to the front, you're going to get the Bible, and that Bible you're going to read, then you're going to go find a church, this works in, in a society where most people are Christians. That's no longer our society. And maybe that's not like putting your hand up and the pastor saying, I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you. Maybe that's not the gospel. Because if I can suggest, the gospel is actually nothing that you do. It doesn't take anything from you. It's something that's already been done. You know, it's not a code of ethics. The gospel is not a code of ethics or a moral law by which, if you say you're a Christian, you must abide by. The gospel does not belong in the self-help section of indigo. It's not daily affirmations that you pump yourself up with in the mirror in the morning. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. Okay, speaking of Facebook, how many of you are in a neighborhood Facebook group? You know, these places are wild, right? Or next door, next door. It's just the wild, wild west in those Facebook groups. Anyone in the St. Norbert one? Where you at? I see you. You're a bunch of lurkers. That's, me. That's mine. There's always the person who sees like the dead cat on the side of the road or, or like, hey, whose dog is out without a leash again? Wow, wow, West, these groups. Now, if somebody posts in the neighborhood Facebook group or the, or the next door and they say uh, there is road construction on your weekly or your regular commute. So on the perimeter highway, there is road construction. Then they're going to say you might want to avoid the perimeter highway because there's road construction. You don't want to get sucked into that like zipper merge that nobody uses and it gets all messy. And then you're like, I'm going to use the zipper merge, which I do because I feel a conviction that we need to follow the rules of the road. But then somebody gets mad and doesn't let me in. And I'm like, grace, I am what I am because of the grace of God. <laughs> you laugh because that's relatable. But here's my point. You post in the face, somebody posts in the Facebook group, they tell you about the road closure, right? And what do they do? They tell you to avoid it. That's good advice. You rearrange your schedule in the morning. That's good advice. You, you take some steps. Maybe you leave a little bit earlier. Maybe you say an affirmation in the morning so you don't get mad in the zipper merch line. <laughs> That's good advice. But if somebody posts in the Facebook group and they say they got that road construction done in the middle of the night, holding up no traffic, no closure, under budget, on time, that's good news. Because what does it require of you then? You don't need to remap your morning routine. 
You don't have to wake up your kids 30 minutes early to get out the door on time. This is good news. You get to drive over that freshly laid down asphalt. No bumps. It's smooth. You even turn the radio off so you could just admire the sound of the engine. You know what I mean? But this is it. Do you see the difference between good news and good advice? Good advice tells you to prepare. It, it, it demands something of you. The good news is it's already been done. That you get to enjoy the, gl the glory of Manitoba roads. Because they did it in the night under budget and on time. This is good news. It doesn't require you to wake up early. Here's my point. That it's not something you do. It's something that's been done. That the gospel is Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah of Israel, coming and fulfilling the promises that are set out in the scripture for us. And he fulfills those promises. And it is not on us to reorder our lives and figure out how to, how to, how to, how to earn what he's done. But it is on us to receive what he's done. To bask in the glory of it as we drive down the highway. It's good news, not good advice. And I think some of you, maybe if you're, you've been a Christian for a while, you're like, Jordan, that's it? That's all it takes to be a Christian? Jordan, you're peddling some cheap grace here that I just have to receive, that it doesn't, doesn't change me? I'm not saying that at all. The gospel makes a demand on us. It was Dallas Willard, and he said this, Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. That you, you can't actually earn the grace of God, but you can work for it and work in it. I mean, what does Jesus say in that passage that we read? Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Believe that the work has been done. Believe that Jesus is who he said he is and repent. Do a 180. Turn the other direction from the life that you're living to the life he has promised you. What does the Apostle Paul say? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. That his grace transformed me, is what he's saying. He says, no, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God is in me. Paul's not working for grace. He's working from grace. Do you see the difference? He's not working to earn the affection and the approval of his Savior, the Jesus, the risen Christ that he met on the road to Damascus. He is working from that transformative moment that he had with God. And everything that he does is an outpouring of his understanding of grace. Because he has repented and he has believed the good news of Jesus Christ. We want the law. That's what we want in our society. When we preached that generosity series last fall, and I, I remember that sermon on tithing. And you can go back, you can watch it, but I, I didn't stand up here and proclaim a mandate that you must give your 10% because it says somewhere in the book that you must do it. But we kind of explored it in light of the, all of Scripture. And, and I left it in your core. I said, this is what we teach, that you should. I can't defend that it's a biblical mandate for you that you must. 
But the amount of people who came up to me afterwards, and you're probably sitting here, I'm not scolding you, I'm saying this is indicative of our nature, who just said, Jordan, why couldn't you just prescribe it? Why did you have to just describe it? Why couldn't you just prescribe it? Tell me what to do. That's what we want. We want to earn the grace of God. We want to work for the grace of God, and it's actually counterintuitive. And this is the beauty of the gospel, let it be known, an identity that is received and not an identity that is achieved, is that you and I work from. We work from. We operate because of what Jesus has already done for us. The gospel is good news, proclaiming a reality. It's not just good advice. We work from grace, not for grace. What else? The gospel is good news, announcing that the kingdom of God is here. Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, has come. The promises given to the people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, what the prophets had foretold over and over and over is now here. And through the resurrection of Jesus, he inaugurates God's kingdom. By being the true Adam, by living the life that humanity was created to live, Jesus, in all of his perfection, in all of his sinlessness, in his oneness with the Father, he has made a way where there was no way. And he has included you and me in the forgiveness of all sins, so that we may live our lives oriented towards him in response to what he has done and that we at the end and that at the end of all days we may be found in him the kingdom of god has come no no creed no, no church creed throughout history, the earliest of Christians, cre Christian creeds, where we were really working out what do Christians believe about, no early Christian creeds outlined an atonement theory. Now, an atonement theory is when Jesus went onto the cross and he died for the forgiveness of our sins, according to the scriptures, and, you know, we get a lot from, from the New Testament writers, but, like, what actually happened like, like, like is, is, did he defeat death on the cross? Well, the New Testament says, yeah, he did. Through his resurrection, he defeats death. Did he take the sins of the world upon his shoulders? Yes, yes, he did that too. And for the earliest Christians, it wasn't a one or the other atonement theory, what actually happened, like what's going on behind the scenes there. It's, it's kind of like a yes and. And in our theologizing and, and different denominational branches have really grasped the different atonement theories, but if the earliest Christians didn't really hammer out exactly what's happening behind the scenes as Jesus is dying on the cross and resurrecting, then it leaves us a little bit of room for charity with one another when we come to, to ask the question, what exactly happens? But there's a number of things that everyone agrees on. That Jesus, as he resurrects, initiates what he foretold in Mark 1. In Mark 1, he says, the kingdom of God is near. As we've been teaching through Mark, outside of this five-week series, we come up against this all the time. The kingdom of God is, is near. The kingdom of God is 
here. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. In Jesus' resurrection, the kingdom of God, the way that things are meant to be, is here. And we live in the reality of His kingdom come. Yet we know His kingdom is not here in all of its fullness. As we go back to the story of Scripture and how Christ will return and renew His creation, His kingdom come in all of its fullness. We live here now in the tension that the kingdom has come, but not yet in its fullness. And we live in this moment, the time between the times. The gospel, though, the coming of Jesus, His death and His resurrection, it is announcing that everything is new. That because of Jesus, you, you can have what Jesus says in John 10, life and life to the full. That when you find yourself in Jesus, you can be sustained. That you can endure suffering in a way that no one else on the face of the earth can endure suffering. Su meaning, meaning that suffering can't rob from you. This is the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus does. For us, sitting here today, we have a question that we pose to ourselves. And it's much like the question we asked last week. When we ask, okay, Christian doctrine, this is great. It comes up here. But we said it can't stop here. It actually has to make its way into our heart as we move through rhythms and practices of song, of prayer, of reading and meditating on Scripture, of living life in Christian community with one another, where we're able to talk through these things and not just have them rest as ideas or knowledge accumulation in our head, but allow them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to transform our hearts, that we may live out this reality through our hands and through our feet into the corners of the earth as Jesus has called us to do. The reality is, and the question for us, is will we pledge allegiance to this king? Will we pledge allegiance to this king? The king who is God. The second person of the Trinity who came into this world, his incarnation as Israel's promised Messiah. The one who in death took the sin and the shame of you and me upon himself, and who in his resurrection commissioned you and me and all of his disciples and followers throughout generations and generations and generations to come, to go out and to be his church, to be the ones who bring hope and healing to the far reaches of our globe, to be the ones who transform the sexual ethic of the Roman Empire and make exploitive sexual practice taboo. To be the ones who, who have the intellectual and the moral framework through which slavery can be abolished empire-wide. The ones through which we can hang our hat and say the fundamental assumptions of, of human rights across the globe hang on Christian assumptions. That we have been sent out to represent Him. So what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do in light of the reality that he will come again, as he has promised, to judge the living and the dead, to restore his creation, the people of God, in the presence of God, in the place that God created, and will set the world to rights. What are you going to do with that? Because either for you, Jesus will be a fact of history, or he will be Lord. He will be a fact of history or he's going to be Lord. And no one makes that decision 
as to who Jesus is except for you. Here's the reality. The gospel is good news, not good advice. There's nothing I'm going to stand up here and convince you of. I'm not going to lay out an apologetic argument about why you need to convert to Christianity. I will say it's already been done and it's yours to receive. The life transformative grace of Jesus, cross, of Jesus, cross, of Jesus Christ won for you on the cross. The good news today has been proclaimed. The good news today has been proclaimed. You've heard it with your ears. The question that we ask each and every Sunday is, so what? And today, maybe it's with the person that you came with, maybe it's just you, or maybe in a moment you're going to need to invite somebody else into the conversation. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to serve him as Lord? Or do you relegate him to the history books? You know, Perpetua, she found something so attractive in the Christian story, so dignifying in life that she would give her life for it. Christian saints throughout the ages and to this very day continue to be persecuted, not just for their nominal affiliation with Christianity, but because they dare to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. You will live in a story. You are living in a story. What story are you living in? I mean, if all of this has a beginning, which most of us would assume that it does, whether it all blew up one day, whether God ordered that blow up, or whether God in seven literal days made it, whatever, you're going to believe that it has a beginning somewhere. Just like every good story. And I would suggest, just like the story of reality, where however he did it, God brought together this world out of an infinite creativity, created you and created me. That he knows your name, the number of hairs on your head, and that he has said, I love you. I died for you. This gospel is for you. The gospel that Perpetua received and could take to her grave, it's also one that could engraft the Apostle Paul, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, one who persecuted the church of God. It was one that said, you can kill us. You can oversee our execution and there's still room for you in the family. Repent and believe. Reorient your life. Maybe that's you if you're a Christian right now. You, you, you would say Jesus is Lord, but you don't live as if Jesus is Lord. Now is the time to reorient your life to the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and living in the reality of that proclamation. So sanctuary, my prayer for you is that you go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In times of old, the one giving a blessing would extend hands. If you would like a blessing this morning, I invite you to extend hands. A blessing, a benediction. So sanctuary, as you go, go celebrating in the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah of Israel, has come, and so with him the kingdom of God has been established. Go living in the reality of his story. 
The story of the God who became a man, who humbled himself and died for the forgiveness of our sins, and who resurrected from the dead, thereby reuniting us with God and accomplishing God's intended purposes for all of creation. Go expecting the return of Jesus Christ and the final judgment of all things where Christ will set the world to rights and where we will live in the fullness of his kingdom to the praise of his glory forever and ever. Be blessed, go in peace, and we'll see you next week.